0: Greetings everyone, welcome to episode 148 of The Glow. so good to be with you. Thank you all for being here. When you're entering, you can share where you're from. And you can hit the wow button or the heart button. You can ask questions at any time. You can tune in any time. Welcome Jessica. Jessica's joining us from Sweden, where I will be in a few weeks. Thanks for being here, Jessica. And um, I'm in Pennsylvania today. And it's actually beautiful weather. I'm looking out that way because there's a window there that shows me that it's beautiful weather, that it's a beautiful sunny day. Excited to be with Amana today, also known as Eile. Ailee Shibar, she's had an amazing life, she's been a dear friend of mine for a while. And I'm gonna get in some really interesting stuff today to share with you. I see Pinar is here from Turkey. Welcome, Pinar. Uh, And Suzanne, welcome. Got some amazing events coming up. Um, I just want to tell you about it really quick before we bring on Amana. We have uh, this retreat in Sweden, the 16th, weekend of the 16th, two day retreat, embodying the light. And then we're going to Europe for a six day retreat in this beautiful estate in northern Italy by the lake. Welcome, Phyllis. <clears throat> and, um, yoga, meditation, breath work, so two opportunities to connect in Europe coming up that um, I'm really excited about. And um, there's still some space available, so there's links at the bottom to tune in and connect with all of that. Uh, we have the 28-day challenge I do for our private group. Welcome Miley. have you all in just a moment, thanks for being here. It's so good to see you. <laughs> So there's links at the bottom for all of that, and um, yeah, I'm excited to to connect with Amana. We practiced this this transition here, so let's see if she pops up effortlessly the way we practiced it. Adding. Yes.
1: It worked! worked.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Our practice worked worked well.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful to be here on this new moon. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: How are you feeling?
1: Well, I'm pretty excited. It's just a thrill to be doing this for the first time and with you. And um, I'm just very. I'm in fact. I don't know if it's on my wall or not, but I was hoping that a few other people that we know might come on board. And I've been thinking yeah. about this new moon, which is happening mm-hmm. right now. Um, it, yeah. Tell me
0: about it. You wrote me about it last night. And what is it? What is it feeling for you or signifying for you?
1: Well, I don't know if it's something that's signifying for me in particular, but I think it's a time where um, we can deepen the uh, genuine feelings of love and compassion we have for all mankind. And it's a kind of unusual moment, the sun in Taurus, the moon in Taurus. Um, I look at it as an opportunity to just press the delete button and start all over because these are new beginnings, new moments in which the old story that we tell ourselves about ourselves can be finished. We can start something completely new in in this very moment. That's always thrilling to me, to be on that cusp of change and to ride that wave into a whole new way of looking, a whole new way of seeing, a whole new way of being. Mm. In my seven decades, I've had to make those changes many times. And so I, it's a precious moment. We're meeting at a precious moment. Yes. Yeah, so mm. namaste. Thank you. And hello to you <laughs> and to Annie and everyone out there. <laughs> so. Um, hello to everybody. Yeah. So.
0: so I feel like it would be good to um, share a little bit of who you are in the relative world. Um, I feel like you've had a, a fascinating life, and it would be, um, it would be, um, it would be good for people to hear. It would be beneficial for them to hear <laughs> um, kind of where you come from. So I know that you things started for you in this incarnation in New York City, right?
1: Yeah, I, I was born and raised in on Long Island, and my parents were. Um, suburbanites, I suppose you'd say, that moved from Manhattan and Brooklyn out to Long Island. And my mother was a raging socialist, (laughs) a writer, and eventually a teacher, and um, who was an immigrant. And my father was a lawyer who often took cases where he would never see any payment or very little. So I grew up Mm -hmm. in an environment that was very inclusive that saw all people as deserving um, of being three-dimensional and being seen for who they were and valued. Um, That meant also I lived close to a huge cultural, energetic experience like New York City, and I took great advantage of that growing up. And My parents made sure that I had a lot of input from all the arts, which was a phenomenal way to grow up.
0: And where did they they immigrate from?
1: My mother came from Russia at the age of 11. um, And she didn't speak any English, of course. They were barefoot. They came across war-torn Poland with just my grandmother and my mother's half-brother and half-sister. My grandfather was already in America and had sent the money for them to come. And um, they had to do it you know, with Polish soldiers, and my aunt was already a teenager. It was a difficult journey on a lot of levels. And when they arrived, my mother was placed in kindergarten. She was already developing as a young woman, and she was 11, because she didn't speak English. And I think the kind of shame of that for her personally motivated her to become the best that she could be. And she graduated five years later at 16 at the head of her class at the same high school that Bernie Sanders went to. Of course Mm -hmm. years before Bernie, but uh and that was her the kind of woman she was. She never took no for an answer and when she wanted something to change and she definitely instilled that in me as well as my love for words and writing and teaching. So which is my current life.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where did where did the When or how did the spiritual path open for you, particularly like, I know you've been inspired by the Eastern teachings, so how did that begin?
1: Well, I think I have to be really honest. It started way before the Eastern teachings. And I mean, there was a kind of mysticism in infancy. I remember, I actually have memories of lying underneath an oak tree on the front lawn as a baby watching the light move from, e- from what was then leaves, but I couldn't even discern them as leaves. So it was like watching energy move, constantly flickering and dancing with, as the leaves were rustling in the breeze. And it felt as a child with maybe just a diaper on, you know, like it happened to my whole body and all of my senses and my beingness. I would say those were some of the earliest Kind of memories. Um, as a child, I, I fell in love uh, with a Shekhinah. I didn't know the name for it then, which is kind of like the spiritual essence of Judaism, just sitting in temple. temple. Um, it overcame me in such a way that I actually almost passed out. And I probably wasn't more than seven or eight years old. I, of course, didn't understand it. There were other things that happened to me in childhood that were part of this vaster consciousness that made me aware that I was part of something so much larger than who I was on Long Island as the child Hmm. of my mother and my father, the lawyer and the teacher. So I think that was always there. I, I mean, I can't remember a place where it wasn't. But of course, mm-hmm. I didn't always live from that place because life was fraught with challenges and definitely moments of great suffering and great passion. And, you know, as things happened, I learned mainly through some of the Eastern techniques how to apply, um, let's call them coping mechanisms at first and then liberating mechanisms ultimately. Um, that could shift my attention from what was dark and difficult into what was filled with light, and beautiful and compelling. And I think you could say about me that my default has always been kind of that—that that movement toward light and love, mm-hmm. that universal energy that I know I saw as an infant. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And how did you first become aware of these? these teachings, what was the, the cows that opened that up for you?
1: The issues or the.
0: What was, what, what opened up the, this realm of these teachings to you, the teachings of the East, uh, India and this realm?
1: Well, I think when I was pregnant with my daughter, first of all, I was very involved with the native American traditions. Okay. Um, when I was younger and I, not only worked in leather and beadwork, um, but I traveled to Hopi land a lot where our godmother, Caroline, who was the wife of the last Hopi sun chief lived. And I got to know the land there. We lived there in teepees. some of us. Um, We lived very communally. We helped Caroline plant her fields. We would come back and harvest. We were Allowed into some of the sacred ceremonies that white people didn't necessarily get to see, um, and it it developed in me a yearning to be part of the earth more than ever before. And Caroline was also a kind of magnificent role model in that she had time traveled and been on spaceships, and you know, as a Hopi elder, kind of held this space of she went to the UN to speak about their drought and, and in a dispute about the Navajo. She was a spokesperson for the tribe and also a tremendous spiritual energy. So I would say that that was where a lot of things happened before I ever went to Eastern traditions. But almost simultaneously, when I was pregnant, I was about to say, and I was carrying one of Caroline's corn mothers with me, I was told that the Karmapa, that would be the last Karmapa, not the current one, was coming to New York City and I should see him no matter what. And I went to see him and received his blessing and a new name and started to discover Tibetan Buddhist traditions. When my daughter was born, I met my one of my first spiritual teachers, a man named Sensei Masahilo Nakazono, and I helped to bring him to this country from Paris where he was the head of all Europe and North African Aikikai Association. And he was a man who had traveled with George Osawa, the founder of macrobiotics uh, in India. So he brought some of those Ayurvedic teachings and mixed with the macrobiotic teachings to us and some of what he gathered from his journeys east. And we also had Many things we did, aside from just the Aikido. He taught me acupuncture and shiatsu, and I worked in his clinic for years. I also made a foundation in his name that's still operating today. And through him, we were able to make acupuncture legal and able to accept third-party insurance in New Mexico. So those were some of the ways in which my activism kind of flowered in the medical realm. I spent many years as a provider of care, not just with treatments of acupuncture, but other things. So I know you're getting back to this question, and I want to go there with you, but you can see that it was never a straight and direct path. Right, right. So It
0: brings up another question for me, which I think is an important one, which is that I feel like you've always... There's an activism, activism side, social or political or cultural activism, and the spiritual uh, aspect. And for a lot of people, these things are different. They ha- they're in one, they're sort of this is there's this camp and this camp, and they're in this camp and not the other camp. But you've you've always talked about how for you it seems like they're not two separate things; they go together.
1: Yeah. Well, this is a really important thing. You pick. You pick to talk about because, um, you know, I personally believe, if, if we can say it's personal, that in, in waking up absolutely everything is included, that nothing can really be repudiated or not good enough. How could that be? Yeah. How could that ever be? So as a result of that, when something challenging arose or happened, I had the choice always, to see that as part of the universal and benign, whole, something I didn't feel that life was out to get me or that I was a victim of it, although that arose often in my life, there was a way in which I discovered that choosing, I'm going to say something in Jungian terms, eros rather than thanatos. Became a hallmark of my life. So the impulse toward creativity and toward that light we spoke of earlier was always stronger than the impulse toward the decay and the suffering um, and loss. So although I had lack consciousness, like everyone growing up when I did, you know, had, I was able eventually to see through that and to see that my life is abundant just as it is. So therefore, how could anything be taken away from it that wasn't already meant to be here? And that all-inclusiveness that I feel is part of the way I teach writing from the heart, for example, or the way I used to share when I shared with my beloved friend Prasad in satsang. From a silence and a depth of comfort With being here in this body even though I am NOT the body and what that means how to take care of it and how to to, um, support it and nourish it you know I I think a lot about my photography and how this has become later in my life this love of being out in nature but nature is a place where you see everything included all the time It's in your face. Yeah. You know, every time yeah. you see a flower blooming, there's a bee on it and it's sucking juice from it, you know. There's a symbiosis and uh an exchange that cannot be duplicated in anything, um even close to what nature has given us. And it's original. So, you know, and and in that same metaphor, the flower is exists. Just to be what it is and it shines as that it opens and blossoms. It's a beautiful beautiful experience to watch and so there I am with the camera and Suddenly I am at one with the flower. There's no separation. How could I be? Yeah, because I can witness and dissolve in that at the same time I think many people artists, especially and writers get this sense. I know you have it that you can dissolve so Anything that is not permanent is going to dissolve, including our frustrations, our fears, our lack of consciousness, all of that. So why not do it sooner than later? And <laughs> we kind of just, you know, feed the part that's eros, that's erotic, that wants to mm-hmm. explode in energy and love. And um, it doesn't mean that we don't hurt and that we don't feel things that happen to us, it means there's a place at the table for those and we love them. We love mm-hmm. them and embrace them. But then we turn our attention again to what is alive within us in this moment. Always back to the moment. That's always where this juiciness lives. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Would you say this is a <clears throat> tantric understanding or tantric? Way of perceiving.
1: Yeah, I think. What, is that,
0: what does that word mean to you?
1: Um, I'm not sure what I could say it means to me. I know my experience of life is extremely tantric, in the sense okay. that that art and life and love are all in tw- intertwined as yeah. one kind of living representation of unity, which is what I think Mm -hmm. Tantra is about, unity consciousness. Yeah. Um, That duality exists so that we can play in that field and remember that there's only really one of us. And we find that one in the merging, which is another way of talking about Tantra, merging in consciousness with other with light consciousness merging in terms of, I mean, how do we know where the sky begins? You know, it's it's everywhere. We are in it. We're already living in the sky, but we look at it and we call it sky. You know, um, the earth. We can feel it under our feet, but we are that too. So I think tantric is kind of a recognition of the union of and the mystery of that in all things and all beings on earth, when we stop and we look, and we listen, and we come from that place. Yeah, Um, so I would say that, um, you know, in, in talking about Tantra, there are probably a lot of people better equipped to discuss it with you than I am, but I'm glad you mentioned it, because it does feel to me that my camera is kind of like a vehicle for that experience Your in the world. Is yeah, when I'm when I have <laughs> it in my hands, it's no longer yeah. separate from me and it takes pictures of what intuitively I'm seeing, not necessarily what the camera is seeing. It's very interesting. I mean, I I've, I've kind of anthropomorphized my camera to be a sort of living energetic for me. It's a field I step uh-huh. into when I pick it up. But I, you know, Other people could do better with that. You asked me about India. I guess the East. Um, I think I could share something about that if you liked. Um,
0: And you know, I want to ask you about Osho, who's been uh, a big conversation in the culture of late.
1: Yeah. So. So, um,
0: Why don't you start segue that into your your time with Osho and your relationship with Osho and the community?
1: Okay. well. Well. I have some words that I wrote down last night. Let me see. If I have about what I wanted to share about Osho. I mean, first of all, um,
0: maybe maybe we should do we maybe just may be people who are listening. I'm sure there will be people listening who don't know much about Osho or don't know Osho. So maybe we could start with just sharing, you know, kind of who yeah. he is and kind okay. of table that.
1: Well, I mean, he was a a. Um, In the last century, he was considered one of the great living mystics. He was a very controversial figure who when he came to the United States and founded um, a community, Rajneeshpuram, and made it alive as a city, met uh, a lot of resistance, and was eventually escorted out of our country and returned to India, where he had previously had a commune before he moved to the States. That's just a little synopsis. I want to say right up front, because I know many people are curious about the video, Wild Wild Country, that I was not at the ranch. And it was not my experience of sannyas at all. But that doesn't mean that many, many people that I knew were not involved and were living there. Um, I was living in Santa Fe when the ranch began to really break up. And I used my house as a welcoming mat for sannyasins who were leaving the ranch. I had my own experiences with people in processes and stages of involvement. But almost none of them ever spoke of Sheila as being really important in their lives. And the movie itself was really based mostly on Sheila and her followers and the town of Antelope. And as a result, I have really no opinion about the documentary, so-called, itself, except to say that Um, I'm glad that it was released and people have a chance to investigate for themselves and to see and reconnect perhaps or meet for the first time who this being Osho really was. His name first was Rajneesh and that's why it was called Rajneesh Purim. And he later changed it. Osho means oceanic. So for that reason, I think there's a kind of a, a flowering or a kind of curiosity about Osho, which at some other time I'd be glad to talk about with people one-on-one or maybe in my own live Facebook event. But I have to say that Osho's teachings, writings reached me long before I became a sannyasin, back when Punta One was happening, as my closest friend became a sannyasin, and a lover of mine also went off. And so I have always thought of myself as a sannyasin, someone who um, believes in freedom. And freedom is not a concept. Freedom is something you live and something that brings you choices. Osho pointed out a lot of ways for the new man and the new woman to live on this earth in harmony, peace, Love and beauty, and that's what I think of when I think of him. the other you huh what you say, you, wrote... huh?
0: What'd you, say? Did you say you wrote something
1: yeah, I said, um what I want to share about osho is that I fell in love with him first through his sannyasins mm. and his writings, both happening in early Pune, and I've mentioned some of these things um, I had lived in a very tribal community setting, often in the 60s and 70s, and so I didn't go to be with Osho for that, as many other people did. Uh, We also had tremendous confrontations and liberating experiences and dynamics that we confronted in these communes that we lived in, and some of them were political. In fact, I lived with some of the leading political figures of the times before India, like Abby Mm -hmm. Hoffman and his wife Anita and um, Paul Kraster, people who were my closest friends in that time, really shaped that era. So coming to Osho, I was not looking for that rebelliousness. I had already been in the streets and been arrested and done these demonstrations taken the hands off the clock in Grand Central Station, thrown the cow's blood at the Dean Rusk demonstration, levitated the Pentagon. I mean, whatever we were doing, I was in the, right in the middle of that, in the heart of that. So I wasn't looking for that. I was looking to, under, to, to understand more in depth who I was uh, and who I was not any longer. And meeting Osho and getting the name Amana severed me very definitely from my entire past. And with it went all of those political concepts and ideals and activities and who I was as a child and many other things. So in finding sannyasins, I felt I had come home to something very precious and important. And that's why I eventually went to India and took sannyas. So my feeling about all of that was that it was precious to me and that I could never repudiate or disrespect a teacher such as Osho, Mm. who was beyond doubt one of the great beings of of these two centuries. You know, Mm. he died before this century, but... So one thing that did happen, though, was that although I fell in love and my heart cracked open and I experienced a lot of modalities that were worldwide fascinating and became familiar with the Osho Tarot deck, which is something I still use in sessions and I find very valuable as a tool for consciousness and awareness, um, is that Osho, left his body, and he said two things. One of them was, um, find another living master while you are still here in your body when I am gone. And the other one, he said, was, I am not leaving. I will dissolve into my sannyasins. So that kind of fused for me in a way that took me eventually to Lucknow and HWL Punja Papaji's feet. And for me, he was a Satguru who kind of further severed that concept of this me and made it possible for um, incredible things to unfold, everyday miracles and mysteries to be told. And, um, It was through a long eye gaze, singing bhajans at Papa's feet that I really had a disappearing act occur um, that lasted and lasted and lasted, and it was a, now I can see it was another experience, but it wasn't the mind that even had it, it was the mind that was absent. It was the heart and the beingness that experienced this shakti, this exquisite um, transmission that changed me forever, I feel. So there was that grace. And that was a huge grace. And without Osho and all the teachers, because I was mentioning before, I had a Japanese teacher. I had many teachers in my life. I had a Tibetan teacher. I had lots of pathways. But all of those have brought me to this moment now. And now I feel in some ways that the guru is intrinsic. But this is true for all of us, whether we awaken in the presence of a master or we awaken bit by bit or however awakening is happening. It's it's not that the days are over of the man in the chair in a linear kind of context sharing satsang. It's that the days of the next two, the circle experience, are rising as the feminine is rising on earth, which I feel are linked. The feminine energy is more spiralic and opening, and the masculine energy is more thrusting and linear. So I do feel we're coming into this fabulous time of the divine feminine appearing on earth in many forms. And I celebrate that so much so that you know this about me. I've always been about this, that when we share in this kind of context of each one of us having something to share, it's so much richer. I think the big glow is in great measure based on that kind of concept. And what attracted me when we first started having meetings here in and I remember taking Ash- Ashley to your meeting in Mabane. Yep. And ever since then, whenever I've been part of one of your offerings, to me, it's that same feeling that we all have something precious to share and to contribute. And why not just cut to the chase and share it and contribute <laughs> it? And not cut out the middleman, but Im- imbibe what we've learned, what we've been given, the incredible grace that has come to us from these beings as far back as we want to go. I mean, look at the poems that Rumi and Hafiz left us, full of this exquisite dissolving and merging with the beloved. And look at the gifts that each one of us has met in in our lifetimes. It's time to share those and to use them as part of our awakening, our tools that we have that we want to um, sharpen and hone. That jewel that we are that gets tumbled in life is only getting brighter and shinier with everything Mm. that we share. So the communal aspect of Osho is not why I went there, but that has been a through line of my life since I feel my very youngest days, that together we can do so much more. We can be so much more. It's kind of an Mm -hmm. evolutionary spirituality that that I'm holding the space for.
0: Beautiful. So one of the questions that's really um, been fascinating for me that's been alive in a lot of conversations I've been having with people feels just alive right now, But I want to ask you about is, where does, what is the difference between community and cult, right? What is the difference between a healthy spiritual yeah. community and something that becomes unhealthy? And your, your experience, you've had a lot of experiences in a lot of different situations. Yeah about that for a little bit for people?
1: Well, the key thing, of course, is power. Power corrupts. And, you know, I mean, it it just does. And that is kind of like from the time I was at my mother's knee and she was a a socialist. That is kind of what I have always seen and witnessed and why I went out into the streets to complain about the Vietnam War and abuse of power uh, and our incredible um, far-reaching colonial style of, being neighbors in, in the world. I mean, you know, kind of the, all of those things um, are anti-life, anti-community. They're separating and divisive. And my teaching, the, what I learned with my sensei, the man I mentioned to you before, was a principle of sound called the Kodatama principle. And it's supposed to be a very ancient sound practice that we used and I still use for healing and for spiritual awareness that helps us see where we are in any given moment. This teaching came, apparently, with the, before the Tower of Babel, which is when this tower, where, before the, that tower was erected, everyone spoke the same language consciousness. Everyone knew how it felt to be on the moon. They didn't need to go there in a rocket (laughs) because there was a sense of oneness with everything and no separation. And then with this metaphoric tower, all languages split and a lot of impure sounds got into our discourses. And with that, boundaries rose up and Cain and Abel, established this for us in the judeo-christian bible and there we are there we are brother fighting against brother from time immemorial so the first thing about distinguishing whether it's community or cult is is there a power structure that negates your your individuality i'm not saying um that your individuality is something positive or negative. But is, is, it, it, is it someplace where you can thrive, where Eros is alive and well? Or is it a culture that is decaying and restricting and militarizing? This is the way in which we have to judge everything. I mean, the world is full of fascist examples of how our democracies you know, don't survive and thrive when we fall into the hands of dictatorship. So dictatorship is kind of an interesting word. And when does someone become a dictator if what they're trying to do is just bring conscious awareness to people? And I I think the answer is clear that that never happens when consciousness is fully awakened. Mm -hmm. And we have to learn the tools to be able to judge that for ourselves, just as Every moment is coming here. I have to be able to be aware in this moment. How am I moving? How am I turning? Where are my feet? What what is planted in me in presence right now that I can rely on that I know to be true? What am I seeing? Is this something separate from me? Is this part of who I am? And when we work from the inner alignment with who we really are, we see what's not in alignment. And then it's our job mm-hmm. to either leave it or change it. That's yeah. how I feel, you, you know. So, yeah. I, you know.
0: <laughs> What's interesting, too, I think, and why it's a fascinating topic in conversation is to a large degree, it's subjective. You know, like people can observe something from the outside and have their, their view on it. Someone can be in a community and feel like it's really thriving and working for them. And then something shifts and they feel like it's not. and they they're, they 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 hate the leader now or the teacher or the guru or whatever. So it's this fascinating thing of like, it's just what I see is just this web of relationships. And it's like, yes. it's like any other relationship, you know, you're in love. You can fall out of love. You can fall back in love. You can feel like you're, you're not being treated fairly or justly. Then you can work it out and you can. And I think ultimately it's like, I look at it. Um, I'll speak about um, Andrew Cohen's community because pretty well documented by him and other people. There was a documentary on that. And I actually was, um, he was the first actually, when I was like looking for enlightenment and awakening, I saw a poster of him on a wall in a yoga yoga studio. So I got very involved in, uh, I was never a part of his community, but I was very involved in his teachings and so forth for, in my twenties. And, you know, I think when I look at that situation, it's like, well, everybody, including him, was getting the lessons that they needed. You know, <laughs> everyone was finding each other and learning what they need to learn and understand what they need to learn. And when I look at the whole thing, you know, in that situation, one of the people that I feel, I mean, honestly, I would say the person I feel the deepest compassion for is him. Yeah. Um, I remember I remember. I, I went to visit his community and this was back when things were really going there and thriving and people didn't, people didn't look at it the way they do now. Yeah. But everyone was sitting together uh, for lunch, and he, he was sitting by himself, like in a separate uh, area. Mm. And I wow. just felt like... Painful. Like Yeah, my sense was like he didn't have any friends,
1: Yeah,
0: you know, because he, he couldn't connect on a level of equality, like everyone was like below him, so he couldn't have any real friends with anybody, and I felt like, you know, kind of a sadness for him of like... Yeah. I wish you had friends, you know, you could just yeah. like dress normal and <laughs> be with us and hang out.
1: Yeah. So it's, Well, yeah, it's I'm, I really appreciate that you brought him up, Brian, um, mm-hmm. not because I have any bones to pick. I did meet Andrew in Bali many years ago when I was living there and uh, being a midwife, which was a part, another part of my life. Um, I remember the confrontation that Gangaji and others had with him because he repudiated Papaji, who was his root teacher. Yes. And I think that there is a certain arrogance that can happen, that unwittingly even, but maybe in his case I can't say, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, that can arise when we are kind of infants and adolescents with our teachers, and then we start Mm -hmm. to to take shape more as the human beings we're, we're going to be or want to become, um, that there's a sort of necessary repudiation of the father figure. And I yeah. think in Andrew's case, that was one thing he never resolved. I don't mean about his own father, but how can you not love somebody who brings you to this present moment with their, mm-hmm. you know, with, with their gifts to you? Whether or not, like an Osho or a Papaji, and so I always felt about Andrew that he wasn't fully cooked. And that's a ridiculous thing to say. And who am I to say that? I don't mean that from an arrogant point of view. I just mean...
0: Well, I, I think he says it now.
1: Yeah, he says it now. Really? And I saw it then. And I think many other people did. But the truth is that we always get what we need. And we get what we need in teachers. We get what we need in, right. in our friendships. We get what we need because life is abundant and wants to give you what you want. There has to be something in Andrew that was so compelling that he wanted freedom, I think it is, that he has been willing to go through everything he's been through and to be a tremendous model for us in many ways that we never anticipated. And so we say thank you because he's part of this evolutionary spirituality I'm talking about. It's not that you wake up, and that's the end. It's then how do you live this life in with all these idiosyncrasies we have? I mean, Papaji used to raid the refrigerator until they put chains on it because he was looking for sugar, and you know we all have them. Ramana loved his his goat and his cow, and you know I think that um when we can accept the human side of human beings then um we can understand why a cult consciousness can arise around someone. It's not that they themselves are trying to make this a cult. They are just coming from their highest, you know, their highest good, what they know to be the best. And they're sharing from that place of love and desire to manifest a different world, I believe. And I may be very naive in that way, Some people think I'm a Pollyanna because I look at that side of life that way, but it's a depth in me, not a frivolous thing that I say that, you know, the human side of human beings, it's very important to be human. Yeah. And to, I think you just, yeah,
0: you said something that I, in a way I hadn't really, I don't know, something about what you said really clicked in in a powerful way that I want to articulate, which is that I think it's about, yeah, it's, there's, it's beautiful to have someone that's, hey, I've, I've realized something, I think it would be valuable to share with you. I think it would benefit you. That's a beautiful um, feeling, a beautiful movement yeah. to move through somebody. And I think it's about the shift is the humanization. The humanization of the teacher or the guide or the whatever the, whatever the, you know, whatever the term you want to use. But yeah. it seems like when you, when you lose the sense of like this person who's a leader in your community or a teacher in your community is a human being like you, that's when things get, get crazy, right? Yeah. And it's, I think what's most important, what's challenging for the person, and this is a thing I think that's really interesting, the person who has the awakening experience, awakening consciousness. And I think it's it's more challenging for men, just the way that we're, we're wired. Um, there, it's, you can have this awakening of consciousness and then what happens is something, if you're not really, really aware and mindful, something goes i had that awakening of consciousness exactly and you people didn't you people didn't have it so i'm you know exactly. now we're, now we've created a wall we've created a separation we've created yeah. a distinction between myself and everybody else and then people start to agree with that story oh yes yeah you you had the experience i didn't have it but i want it i want you know please tell me how i can get what you have and this whole this whole thing of separation yeah comes into being
1: well, you know? and that's where power gets confused because then that person who thinks he has something to share, you know, that's going to change people's lives, isn't always clear on how to share it. And yeah, some of us are carrying abusive power issues in our lives and we need to turn and look at our own shadows in order to really lead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and leading to me is, again, this next to, not hierarchical thing. Yeah. But we're all leaders, we're all leaders. We all have yeah. the capacity to lead. And I think yeah. one of the reasons why, I mean, Papaji did ask me, he was very playful with me about my writing. I used to run over with a poem after I'd been on a trip and I'd show it to him and he'd put his arm around me and uh-huh. he'd laugh with me and he'd say, oh, I love this word. And he'd point to the word buttocks you know (laughs) in my poem and he said you're a writer you're a good writer he said why not use writing to bring people to satsang Mm -hmm. and it took a while for me to figure out how to do that and the best way it turns out is to let people meet their own inner voice and to hear it from within that they already know the truth about who they are They already know the truth they already know what beauty is and it is so refreshing to see people waking up from their own guru inside and connecting with that and writing from that place is so thrilling and exciting that people's lives actually grow and expand and you may not know them as a teacher in the way that we're talking about Andrew or Papaji or anyone, but know them in their communities. They're the poets and the artists who are unafraid to be naked and unabashed about what they want to share. That's coming through them, and they're plugged in. They're downloading. They're downloading when they're in that flow, which is the only place to be. It's that creative, that creatrix place. Mm-hmm. You know, the start of everything. Creatrix. Yeah. Yeah. So in that place our story that we've held about ourselves can look totally different. And those power issues can get seen and, and also in a place not of imp- love. Sorry. What'd you say?
0: I was gonna say also not important. The story of who I am is also not yeah. important from the space. It's of- not
1: important except in that it can shed light on someone else's story mm-hmm. as they're reading it yeah. or something like that. I mean, certainly the things that you have written in your books are enhanced yeah, by definitely. being with you in person, but they're pointers. And if it yeah. hadn't been for Osho's books or even the card I had from Meher Baba way back when that said, don't worry, be happy. These were words mm-hmm. that kind of brought this awareness in, into place, into focus, yeah. that there is a place for words in, a, in that awakening path. and journaling, but more than journaling, you know, writing the thing that you're meant to write, being and saying what it is you are meant to be and say. Um,
0: yeah, what I mean is that you don't become, um, you're not identified or attached to the story of who you are, which actually yeah. I find like paradoxically makes you a better storyteller.
1: Because exactly. you're freed
0: up now. To, yeah.
1: It's exactly like, right.
0: Uh, it's I'm so going to bring up our friend, which I brought him up last week. As well um you can bring I, him up I, I, all
1: the time with me <laughs>
0: <laughs> what, what's always struck me about him is i think he's a phenomenal storyteller right when he sits down and tells a story about something that happened in his life or something he experienced he's such a great storyteller but i think he's the reason he's such a great storyteller is because he's not attached or identified to any story of who he is so it frees him up to really get in so it's it's a paradox from what people think people think that like oh, if I'm not attached to the story, then I, can't, then I can't tell stories. It's exactly. actually the opposite. It actually makes you a better storyteller and liberates you in this kind of unlimited, unbounded way to, to create the story that you want to create, construct the story that you want actually, to
1: Actually, you can create any story, and it, you can call it yours because it isn't yeah. yours like your own story isn't yours. And that's why mm-hmm. fiction gets written, and it can be so helpful in instruction. Is instructive because we can write characters that we're making up uh, on some level. And they're saying things that we might want to say or use at some point in our lives. So I think all writing has all genres of writing has a purpose for us and is useful Mm -hmm. for us. And the greatest bliss is hearing the person next to you stand and share something they wrote in that very moment. That's just full of, honesty and truth and you know that for those moments of writing the mind was not present as a mind the ego yep. was not present as an ego it was all in subservience to the greater good and it was a kind of a channeled response that comes through yep. so when you asked that question earlier about and i gave the answer about power i think that these kinds of let's call them equamenical experiences where we're all side by side and sharing what we know and love with one another are the way that we tell truth to power. Um, Because Mm -hmm. there isn't one of us who is the embodiment of the truth, we are all that. And I, I feel that's where my political activism and certainly I used that activism my whole life in public health, you know, and and fighting for women's rights, which has been a lifelong passion of mine, um, ever since I had a baby. Um, for the the right uh, for women, their offspring, their children, adolescents. all these programs that I ran when I was working in the field, I, these were all based on my activist years, and I feel that the same is true of writing from the heart. It's another way of sharing this equality, this sense of everyone is a gift if you have the eyes to see it with the world. You know, that's so wonderful, place to live from. I'm not saying that it's, I'm by far, there are thousands upon thousands and millions of us sharing these ideas and concepts every day. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful that we're all part of this shift. consciousness Mm. that's taking place now
0: i wanted to say hey everyone out there and if you have any questions feel free to jump in and ask any questions or comments thank you all for being here and we do have one fun question from elizabeth (laughs) i love this who is she i came late
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay hi elizabeth hi sweetie (laughs) i'm your own self in another form
0: (laughs) We did kind of share some of the things that you've you've done. Um, I do want to share, like you're you're starting to share some of the things that you're doing now with the writing from the heart. Um, but I always find that question is such a fun question. You know, it ties into everything that we're talking about. Like, what's the story of me, right? Yeah. So I, you know, of course, I get this question too. Who are you? What's your story? And it's just, it's I I, th- I just think it's fascinating when you come from this um, sense of the truth is being no one, essentially, to put it in words, but then who are you in the relative relative world? So that's a fun question. I think that we're we're kind of moving through week by week here as we explore this essence of
1: okay. reality.
0: But yeah, well, in this moment, who would you like to say you are? Well,
1: um, for Elizabeth and for you, I mean, I guess I had this um, book here. Uh, I'll find it in a minute, but I wrote this actually a couple of days ago. It came through as a kind of channeling. Oh, great. Yeah. And um, it was when I was thinking about this upcoming class on Sunday and, and this place of silence that is where all the creative potential lies in that silent emptiness. It's just, mm. it's, and I, the question, which was the question that i first heard asked by my beloved papaji was who am i which is a kind of you yep. know from the silence that can sometimes be answered so i wrote mm-hmm. this the other day and said i said who am i that ancient inquiry i've been all these roles now for seven decades child and infant daughter companion lover, friend, colleague, mother, grandmother, powerhouse, wonder woman, aunt, writer, teacher, nurse, midwife, deaf doula, light artist, activist, social change agent, community rabble rouser and more. Who I am now is not some static thing that cannot change. Not one cell here is a cell I was born with. I am what I am until I am not. But the container for that I am is always moving toward and away, back and forth, in and out in a dance that happens as long as there is a body and it's like the swing that Kabir mentions in his poem. Um, so that was the place where I was going to read you this poem of Kabir's, which I promise you.
0: That was awesome. <laughs> that was exactly the answer I was hoping you were going to give. That's oh, fantastic. yeah. I love
1: that. Well, I, because I see that everything is included and nothing is negated, I have to include everything that I've ever been. Yes. And not well, repudiate they- any of it, it all brought me here to this moment with you, Brian. This precious moment yes. between us. Yeah.
0: Yes, both of us.
1: Yeah. This precious moment. So, mm-hmm. thanks for the question, Elizabeth.
0: <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, what are you doing now? You're doing. Tell us, like, what's alive for you? What's What's projects that are inspiring you, that are exciting you, um, and a, a way that people can Um, connect with you?
1: Well, I'm feeling into this idea that maybe there is a way of living life, and I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek for myself, as if every moment held the entire cosmos within it, and this would be the last moment we would have. It would be the last flower I would see blooming, or the last bee I would see, drinking nectar. Um, How would we respond if we were aware that this was our last moment? You can imagine that as I age now, I am often thinking about, well, what is it that remains? And what do I want to leave behind? Is there such a thing as leaving something behind? Am I always going to be here in some form or other? But Ram Das once said, everything is grist for the mill. So I feel gratitude for that. And I think that since most of our lives are spent reacting, my job right now is to remember to be a source of response and to respond instead of react. So when something arises, I have the opportunity to say, well, here's my reaction to it, but is that real? Is that true? Like Byron Katie would say, is that so? That reaction, is that the truth of this moment? So uh, my focus is on ways to do that with myself and with everyone else that I come into contact with. So that's what I offer through sharing this sort of um, process uh, as a writer, a published author, a poet, um, and uh, my mother was a writer. I mean, I, it's it's in my blood. I've used this vehicle that Papaji suggested as a way to ask those difficult questions of ourselves, the inquiry, who am I, and how do I want to live, as Mary Oliver says, said, my one wild and precious life, because you can start it over and make it different at any moment that you choose to so that's how I want to devote myself now there's some ways in which I'm doing that one of them is um, I as mentioned earlier I had a lifelong engagement with women's health and I was a midwife and uh, worked the pediatric NICU and I did a lot of things that you know got me degrees and diplomas and names I was the director of adolescent health for the state of New Mexico and established and expanded school-based clinics and faced issues that kids face with teachers and healthcare providers in epic and historic conferences. But now I'm a grandmama for a group that changes every several weeks of postpartum mothers and their babies in Asheville. And we're starting a group this Friday. Again, if anyone is interested, you can um, send me a private message at Aile Shibar on Facebook, and I'll give you more information. And I'm there for the mamas and for the babies and have just a phenomenal experience bringing in everything I have learned and known into the present moment in a way that's fluid and accessible for multiple populations. You know, we've got the facilitator of the group, we've got the mamas, we've got the babies. Sometimes there are other children involved. And then I grow with these newborns and like I used to in Santa Fe, the babies I delivered in home births and in the hospitals. And um, that's part of my commitment. So um, it's living in response rather than reaction. It's being willing to examine that shadow that arises in reaction, and say, wait a minute, here's the light switch. Let's check out what's happening over here. So that I can choose, to some extent, to step out of lack and victimization at every instant. And I think that that, that works for a lot of people. It's like- um,
0: I, wanna it, highlight, I wanna highlight what you said, um, I think it's really important. Moving from a place of
1: response.
0: Um, Response instead of reaction, which helps to move out of the space of victimization.
1: It does completely because, you know, we've heard from Candace, you know, McMasters, and we've heard from Bentinho, take two to five seconds, you know, take a breath, recalibrate. But these are not meaningless activities. These are things that we do until they're, again, intrinsic we take the beat, I used to call it in my acting days. You know, you wait to feel into the sacral, energetic response that the moment is asking for instead of the reaction that will catapult you into a place that you didn't really want to choose. I think we mm-hmm. all want to choose what's in our highest good. I think we can yeah. fairly say that. Most people on the planet want to do that. And then that spills over into how we can take care of the planet. Instead of being in reaction, we have to respond. How we can take care of each other, how we can live in community, how we can dialogue, how we can have the political conversations. It's just responding instead of reacting. Beautiful.
0: And it may relate to There's a question from Tracy Gray. How did you find being a mother and then nothing, self self-realize in parentheses how to navigate with wanting to serve the greater good i think it relates to there's the mother part and it's been mother's day but it relates to a deeper question reading it a second time that i actually wanted to follow up on so i'm glad it came up this sense of wanting to serve the greater good right so i'm wanting to create a better world and it's like you have this realization it's like this 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 self-realization happens and it's like well wow, everything is so perfect right now. So it can seem like it's like a contradiction. I'm I'm working with, I've worked with a few people recently where that seems like it's like this contradiction, but I think you actually, you you integrate a place inside yourself where it's not, where actually the two go together perfectly. What are your, what would you like to say about it?
1: Okay, so let me see if I can get really clear on what you're saying. There's this desire to want to see the world the way we can envision it and to participate, for example, in terms of the environment. Or, I think that's what brought right. the question up. And then there's the point of view that everything, did you say, is or is not perfect?
0: Everything is perfect exactly yeah. as it is. Like exactly. Nothing actually needs to change at all.
1: So I heard that as is, and I wanted to respond from that place. But if you had said isn't, I wanted to respond there. (laughs) So um, first of all, realizing that everything is perfect as it is doesn't mean it always feels good. I mean, that's kind of the place where the question arises to react or the, the whole impulse to react happens. And here's this child in front of me that, of course, I love and adore and want to protect above all else and you know she's throwing a tantrum and she wouldn't she doesn't know who I am and what I've done in the world all she has is her experience of me in this moment and in this moment being the best me that I can be is the perfection of the moment and that Mm. could mean it could be it could look like taking a time out it could look like responding from a place of love it could look like silence it could look like Picking her up it could look like a million things there isn't just one possibility even though the moment is perfect it's perfect because it's arising and it's in our consciousness and it's here but there is no one outcome that's why the universe is so abundant because we have so many options always so it's not I think the answer is that we do what we can do in the present moment from a place of love and a place of still wanting to see the whole change. But we have to be that, that we want to see change. We can't be in reaction and imagine a world that is not in war, at war.
0: Yeah. So, as and soon I, as I we start add,
1: reacting, would... we are in war with what is. So I'm, I'm not sure. So yelling at a child, for example, well, you know, okay, it happens. So it happens. There's a place where we can recognize that that wasn't maybe our highest, um, our highest. Um, let's say, I, I'm going to take us back a second. That sensei I told you about, he told, taught me one thing. He said that, because we we experienced in Aikido, we used swords and we did sword practice alone, but he also had, something called a kaisaku, which is a, a kind of a, a stick that you got hit with in sitting zazen. And you yeah. would come around and you would ask for this stick and you would bow and then he would hit you on the shoulder because you knew he was going to hit you whether you asked for it or not. So it's kind of like that. We're all sitting in meditation. Something mm-hmm. arises and a thought comes and it takes you out of the present moment. The stick can help bring you back to the present moment, or it might hurt. We don't know, but we can only Mm -hmm. be the best me we can be in that moment. And that me without conditioning and without contrivances is a whole lot more available and present than the me that is the ego in reaction. And I think that, so that applies to every situation I can think of, whether you're a mother, with a child or whether you want to do something to protect and ensure the environment, you know, gets cared for. There are ways in which we can respond from the depths of our being that we know is in alignment with our highest good and ways that are not. And we forgive ourselves for the ways that are not, you know, the Mm -hmm. wonderful Ho'oponopono refrain, you know, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Thank you. I love you. So I don't know how else to share that. The thing <laughs> is that with my child, I was a single mother and I had to make her my first teacher. She was my first spiritual master. And if I hadn't too, done... Bryce, yeah, exactly. If I hadn't done that, I would never have been able to survive. That's the truth. But I recognize that she was my teacher. So, you know, that's, a high five for those mothers who have recognized that, that this child came through you, not just for her life, but to help you help mirror where you are standing right this moment. You know, no judgment, but.
0: Annie said, this is one of the most beautiful conversations. You are a shining example of awakened grace and service and action. Jay Ma, thank you both. Kay says, wow, I love it. And Taylor says, wonderful insight. Tracy says, Tracy has another inquiry. I found that I've sensed this dynamics of relating change and I felt I was leaving them by being true to my changing self. Any comments on that?
1: Oh yeah, leaving them meaning the children.
0: No, um, do you mean your children, Tracy? It could be children, but it could be anybody. I, this is the thing I, I find a lot that people talk about. Well, they have this awakening of consciousness, and like, well, these are this is my family. These are the people that I'm around. I'm like I'm gonna like, kind of like not relate to them anymore, or leave them behind, or
1: oh yeah, it could be well, a, a you know
0: a, a partner or a friend or a yeah. you know a community.
1: Well, Osho certainly asked us asked that of us when we took sannyas and. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, many people did do just that, but I did not go to the ranch because I was a single parent, and I did mm-hmm. not feel it was in my daughter 's best interest to be growing up there at that time mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. very simply, you always have yourself to um as as the aware judge of the moment, not judging yourself but as the aware judge of the moment. Did I miss something? Maybe, but I don't feel as though I did. I feel that it was important to our lives that I stayed and that I pulled myself out of the situation I was in and went back to school and did all the things that came first um, while taking care of her. I mean, it, I, I needed help at times. So my daughter lived with other people in periods of her life while I went back to school or, you know, I had to, keep down two jobs and commute for a night school. So there's a lot of things that we do because we are in relationship that do take us sometimes from this idea that we're seeking truth, but we find truth in every single moment of our lives. We cannot escape it. And how we respond to it is the teaching. Once you have... Many people will never meet a master like a Papaji. Many people will find and awaken from their own inner strengths and from their own suffering when they finally had enough. So leaving the family is an optional idea. But as I said, there's a smorgasbord of things available to you, you know, that you can eat from and nourish yourself with and not be off any path the path is mm. pathless once it's intrinsic mm. everywhere you go you're on it because you're carrying it with you when osho said i will mm. dissolve into my sannyasins that's what he meant i think you can always recognize someone who has you know chosen to live in that movement toward light it's recognizable in our culture there's this
0: great there's this great paradox that I want to like speak to and then we're going to wind it down here, um, which is that when you can recognize, <clears throat> recognize this, because I think you're, you're pointing at it in different ways. I just want to like kind of bring more to it. When you're, when you're, I love when about you recognize you. this perfect.
1: I love that about that? you. Thank you. <laughs> when
0: you. When you recognize this perfection in yourself, this wholeness, this completeness in yourself now, whatever the circumstances, whatever the situation, whether you're a single mom or you're married or you're working a job that you don't like or you love, you know, all this stuff, not, it, it is what it is. But if you can recognize something beyond all that, that's perfect, perfect and whole and complete now, it paradoxically makes everything better. It's okay. this amazing like paradox, you know, because we think of like, oh, I need to make something better in the future. But if you can actually recognize that it's it's actually whole and complete and perfect now, then all these things will shift and change the way they're they're supposed to beyond what you can even like understand or comprehend with your mind. Right.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And you're so right on because this is sort of what you were saying in the beginning, too, about all the efforting. Yes. And how, when you let go of the efforting, you know things things just happen on their own, or appear to happen on their own, and the synchronicity. Exactly. Your writing
0: exercises.
1: Exactly. The synchronicities of that are endless and beautiful and um, life altering. So we we judge ourselves so harshly when we think waking up looks like something like this. And that we aren't there yet, or that in order to be awake we have to do X, Y, or Z, leave this relationship, you know, go to India, um, do prostrations, uh, beg for help, whatever, what, whatever those ideas are, they're just thoughts. And the bottom line is that if we don't really pay too much attention to our thoughts, something else will come along that's even better. Just like yeah. you said. Um, yeah. And Papaji said something. He said, um, his, his quote about, um, make the mind your servant and the ego your hand servant, your handmaiden, your hand servant. and then Beautiful. Every, and then everything will unfold perfectly as it should. And that's kind of what cases. happens. The ego rises and it says, do something different. Do something better. Uh-huh. Do something more. You're not doing enough yet. <laughs> that's never going to lead us to some place of wholeness. It's going to just take us yeah. away. So relaxing into what is is always the best option. And that's where the response comes from. It's from the relaxation that you can respond instead of the tension that causes yeah. reaction.
0: Yeah. Kay says, thank you both so much. This is exactly what I needed to experience.
1: Oh, thanks everybody for your beautiful comments. Yeah.
0: I would say this is exactly what we all needed to experience. And this is, that's why we're experiencing it.
1: Sweetheart. It's true. I'm so glad that we decided to make these conversations we have public today. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I love, love, love the way you summarize and, and, um, feedback and mirror back the essence of what people are sharing it's one of your great streams mm. that I appreciate because I've you. seen you,
0: thank you over Ma- many
1: years develop into this one who's here now just like mm. yeah I've had to develop yeah yeah yeah, so, yeah. Um, thank could, you so much for being here you're very welcome I wanted to maybe close with this little bit of sharing um, okay. of a quote Um Um, you had asked about Osho and this was my first thing I did this morning was I picked up the Osho Zen tarot which is something I continue to do give sessions that Um, it was such a beautiful deck and I picked two cards one for the Sun which is in Taurus and one for the moon which is in Taurus and by the way I'm also a Taurus so what a perfect timing for this The first card I picked for the sun was Understanding. It's a picture of a dove that thinks it's inside of a cage or a jail. And outside, above, where the bars are starting to dissolve, all the birds are flying free. And the understanding is that we are already the freedom we are searching for. We just have to let go of the idea that we are not, that we are limited, that we are not perfect just as we are and that we can't fly with the other birds. And the card for the moon was this card, awareness, and I wanted to read you the Osho quote from that, this beautiful card that reveals what is behind all of us, every one of us. Can you see that? Yes. Okay. Osho's words about this card. Mind can never be intelligent. Only no mind is intelligent. And by the way, that's what amana means. It means no mind or beyond mind. It also means silly and foolish. I'm glad to say (laughs) (laughs) But in this sense, it means beyond mind. So only no mind is original and radical. Only no mind is revolutionary, revolution in action. The mind, This mind gives you a sort of stupor, burdened by the memories of the past, burdened by the projections of the future. You go on living at the minimum. You don't live at the maximum. You're flame remains very dim. Once you start dropping thoughts, the dust that you have collected in the past, the flame arises, clean, clear, alive, young. Your whole life becomes a flame and a flame without any smoke. That is what awareness You can see why you have to love a teacher like Osho. He says it so beautifully. So yeah, I hope that some of people who are watching might be interested in coming and joining us on Sunday at Violet Owl Wellness, um, 62 Wall Street in downtown Asheville, next to Jubilee from 2 to 5.30 PM. We'll be there writing from our hearts and sharing aloud. And I would love it. So let's put a,
0: let's put a link in the comments okay. um, when we're done here so people can find that information. Or you all can send it. to me, I could do it.
1: I, I'd be happy to. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Brian. It's always Thank good you to so see much you. Uh, yeah, I love you. Love you to the moon. Love you too.
0: Love everybody. Yeah. Love all of you.
1: Thank you for being
0: here. Appreciate you Bye. so much.
1: <laughs> see you next time. Next time. Bye. Bye.